that ancient psalm tune, Bishop Thorpe. We have just sung together the 89th psalm. We will return to 1 Corinthians in a couple of weeks, and when we do, I will catch you up and remind you of what we have seen thus far, and we will uh, pick it up at chapter 7. But uh, for this week and the next, I have a couple of passages on my heart that I want to expound and preach to us. I would ask that you turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We will be focused on verses 10 through 17, but the entire context is necessary. And so after we pray, we will read all of the third chapter of 2 Timothy. Will you please bow with me in reverence and awe before the Lord. O Lord, our God, we recognize as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are sinners saved by grace, that we have merited nothing, that in and of ourselves we merited hell and damnation, but we are saved by grace through faith, that even that faith is a gift of grace. And so, Father, we are thankful that now we love the word that we once despised, that we love the Christ who loved us first and gave himself for us on the tree. It saddens our heart to look at the church today. Oh, so many blessings, so many faithful preachers of the gospel, so many congregations striving to, to please our great God and Master. But nonetheless, it saddens our hearts to see apostasy and the falling away and a despising of those things that are true and right and good. Help us, Heavenly Father, from this text and others to learn how to live in the midst of a fallen world, but also in the midst of an apostatizing church. We ask and pray, Father, that those who may not be Christ's who are here today do not know Him, have not trusted Him, that they will be called out of darkness into the glorious light of the kingdom of God's own dear Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand as we read the entirety of 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the Word of God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, 
that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the Apostle Paul in this passage, addresses Timothy to remain firm and stay the course in view of what he said in these first ten verses. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Will those perilous times come in the world? Well, surely they will come in the world as sin and darkness increases, yes, But the stress is not upon the world alone. The stress is these worldly thoughts and ways will develop and will influence the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that particularly in verses 5 through 8, in which you cannot miss that he is addressing the church influenced by these ways and thoughts of the world. And so he is saying to Timothy in this passage, Timothy, you must be alert, you must be discerning, prepare to stand in the coming great apostasy, and every generation of Christians should be challenged so to stand. That's you, and that's me, that's your children, that's this church as we sit here this morning. That's the challenge of the Word of God to us from this text. Well, how does he call upon Timothy to stand and to to be firm in the midst of such falling away and failing? Well, I want to point out in this text three ways that he says to Timothy that he is to take his stand for the cause of God and truth. The first is, Paul says to him in verses 10 through 13, follow my example. Paul's example is contrasted sharply with the false teachers when he says in verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. Timothy then, in this text, is said to have carefully followed. Now, the word he uses here for carefully followed, the verb, is the same word that the Apostle Luke, that Luke uses when writing his great uh, gospel in verse 3 of the opening of Luke, where he speaks of carefully following his sources. And so, Timothy has been one who has been carefully following the teaching and the way of life that followed from that teaching that he had learned from Paul the Apostle. 
His teachings had become Timothy's teachings. His preaching, Timothy's preaching. His way of life had become Timothy's way of life. And of course, conduct flows from teaching received in the heart. Teaching precedes conduct. If you are here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, it will mean very little to you. You might even acknowledge these teachings to be true, but do you know Christ personally? Do you know Him as your Lord and your Savior? Are you going to be able to stand or will you go the way of the world as you think, see things change in culture, society, and in the professing church today? And so Paul's aim in life, he says in verse 10, contrasts with the aim in life of the false teachers about whom he wrote in those first 10 verses. Paul's heart direction differs from their heart direction. His heart direction is revealed to us in chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Everything the Apostle Paul did was for the sake of seeing the elect brought to faith in Christ, to see them grow, to see them mature, to see them stand for the cause of God and truth. So down to the end, his aim was always on the bullseye of serving the master who had bought him with his own precious blood, so much so that toward the end of this chapter, he will say, I have kept the faith, which should be the goal of each of us to be able to say at the end, I have kept the faith. The goal of each of us as believers should be to finish well. Well, Paul's faith, which he calls my faith, contrasts with that of the apostates who professed being believers in Christ, who had a form of godliness, but who denied the power thereof. You can't say that about Paul. He knew the gospel. It transformed his life. It controlled his thinking, his acting, his whole aim of life, his whole purpose. So that he said in this very epistle, 2 Timothy 1.12, I know in whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, the day of the return of Jesus Christ. And so if you look at verse 10, you will see that he contrasts his long-suffering with the false teachers. He is one who stays with it, who is faithful to his calling, faithful to his task, who is patient with those whom he instructs. Paul's love contrasts because he was not filled with self-love. Oh, undoubtedly he had to fight it as every believer does within, but he was not controlled by self-love. No, no, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ constrains us or controls us. Someone has actually translated, the love of Christ holds us in custody. Paul's steadfastness, his endurance, his perseverance, his stand for Christ, his love for the truth contrasts with the false teachers. And his persecutions and afflictions contrasted with the false shepherds, the hirelings, who undoubtedly would have fled from real persecution of believers. When he says in verse 11, my persecutions, and notice how everything here is my, 
my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, it's personal to him, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. And this was the area in which Timothy had grown up. And you can read about these persecutions in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Paul was stoned and left for dead at Lystra, but he was willing to serve Christ and to serve the church. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He was willing to be stoned to death if that is what it took to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those in need. And it's in Acts 14 that he says that his purpose in the preaching of the gospel and establishing these churches was confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. So, Every time, says Paul here, that I was in a fix like that, in a position like that, the Lord delivered me. And now he's in prison. This is the last epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote. He's in prison. He knows that he is going to die. And will the Lord deliver him? Well, of course. For he says in verse 18 of this chapter, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's about to die. He's filled with praise. He's praising God, filled with doxology, because he's about to be delivered through death to the heavenly kingdom. That's a remarkable aim in life. Now, the principle that we are to take from this, people of God, is that all Christians living a godly life will endure persecution to some extent. If you'll keep your finger here and turn to John 15 for a moment, I want to remind you of some of the words of our Savior in John 15, 18 through 20. John 15, beginning at verse 18, where our Savior says this, Having said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. He says in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So there's the principle. We read in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We stand for the truth. We speak the truth in love. We passionately desire for God's elect to come to know the Lord. We're spreading the gospel far and wide, and as we do so, we will be persecuted for it. So that's the first general principle we take from this. Follow my example, and part of that example is how the Apostle Paul took his stand in the midst of serious persecution. But another principle here is that 
things will get worse and worse. Now, we find that in verses 12 and 13. We can find it in other places also where he says, and this is back in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, he's talking about the great apostasy in the church. There are other places that speak of this. For example, in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching, teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. There is coming, he is saying, an apostasy in the church. And here in verse 13, when he speaks of those going from bad to worse, A.T. Robertson translates this, they shall cut forward to the worst stage. It's the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And so that's what he's saying here. More and more, this evil that you see now, already the seed of apostasy in the church is going to develop. This is called a verb of progress, but it's a verb of progress in the reverse. It is, rather than growing better and better, more and more faithful, more and more consistent, it is growing worse and worse. This is the organic development of sin in the human race that also influences the unbelievers that are in the church, the professing church, I mean. Uh, that sin will continue to grow until the fullness of it so permeates the earth and permeates the false church that Christ comes again in judgment. And it can happen with false teachers in any congregation. Calvin said, one worthless person will always be more effectual in destroying than ten faithful teachers in building, though they labor with all their might. Ah, that's the power of evil, though it's not the ultimate power, is it? So here is Paul's apostolic authority, Paul's godly teaching, godly example, and by contrast, the false teachers delude people, and they do not lead to the Christ of the Bible. So Paul is holding up his example. Now, when he wrote an epistle, he wrote by divine authority, and he wrote by divine inspiration, and it was without error. His example was not without error, but it was true. It was in the right trajectory. It was incredibly and wonderfully faithful. Do not underestimate what a godly example for believers can do to help other believers stay the course. And I've said this to you young people, and I want to say it to you lovingly again. Find somebody that is more holy than you are to befriend so that through their godliness, you also are spurred on to godliness, to a hatred of sin, a love of Christ, a love of righteousness. Certainly do not, do not make your closest friends and associates with whom you share your intimate thoughts and feelings and secrets, those who do not know the Lord and don't care anything about Him. Strong believers come from other strong believers. That's why it's important that we're a part of a church and that we're maturing together and that there are all ages and that we are maturing in 
watching the examples of others and being friends within the flock. Now that's the first way then he says to him and says to us, this is how you're going to stand in the evil day. Now another way that Paul challenges Timothy to stand, this is the second thing, remember what you have learned from godly parents and pastors. Remember what you have learned from godly parents and pastors. So he goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul then exhorts Timothy to continue in what he has learned from his youth. Timothy was personally assured of these things, having grown up in the atmosphere of the covenant of grace, and the Spirit of God took these things to his heart. He learned the Old Testament from Lois and from Eunice. He learned from his mother and from his grandmother these truths, and he was taught by Paul the Apostle. If you look at chapter 1, verse 5, you see already a reference to this. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Or verse 13 of this first chapter, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith, in, in the faith and love and that are in Christ Jesus. Or in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So it's a matter of teaching, learning, teaching others, passing on the truth, passing on these things that every generation must know if we are going to be faithful as sin increases in the world and even grows in the professing church. Parents, grandparents, pastors, others of you who have obligation, privilege to serve those who may be younger, those who may be weaker, those who may be less mature or new to the faith, parents, grandparents, and especially in pastors, look what God may do through you as you teach the Bible to your children or to your disciples. Point them to the text. Patiently teach them to listen to the sermon. Help them to become totality thinkers, thinking about all things out of the text of sacred Scripture. Do not let them hear Scripture at home and church and then critical theory at the school. Do not let the foxes guard the chicken coop. Children, have a heart to hear, have a heart to listen, have a heart to grow, and for that you need a new heart that comes by the regenerative work of the Spirit of God. You must be born again. Children, have a heart that wants to know Christ, that really loves the Bible, and that wants to mature into godly young men and godly young women. Have a heart for it. We talk about J. Gresham Machen a lot around here, one of our great Presbyterian fathers in the faith who in the 1920s and 30s fought the good fight and helped to preserve orthodoxy with the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the founding of Westminster Theological Seminary. 
one of the greatest New Testament scholars ever to have graced the history of God's people. But Machen's start was with his godly mother who taught him the catechism on Sunday afternoons, who at the age of 10, he could recite the kings of Israel, filled his mind with facts about the Bible, because you build on facts, taught the truth, and actually very quietly, his father and mother lived a godly life in front of him. Nothing ostentatious, but God used it and gripped his heart so that in later life when he was in Germany and he was tempted toward liberalism, what kept him from it is that he had learned these truths in the heart and he learned how to make use of this in the midst of what he was being taught and to see the falsehood for what it was. And so in 3.15, notice how Paul puts it when he says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or sacred scriptures, hiera grammata, or hiera sacred, sacred writings. From infancy, it was, it was this leading of his, of his uh, grandmother and his mother that Timothy learned the sacred scriptures. It was simply his environment. It was in his mother's milk, so to speak. And I also am very impressed, aren't you, that when he speaks of the scriptures, he speaks of the sacred scriptures. He could have simply said the scriptures, and we all know the scriptures are sacred, but he wants to underscore it. Because there is, for Timothy in that day, living in the midst of paganism as he teaches the gospel, and there is for us today such a, such a lack of reverence, such a lack of dignity, such a lack of awe as we consider the truths of the gospel. Irreverent worship, irreverent thoughts. Oh, people of God, the sacred scriptures. With God's blessing, this leads the children of the promise to salvation, he says in verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so God uses means to bring his elect to himself. And as you teach your children these things, the Lord will bring children a promise to himself through these very things that you teach and what they hear in the preaching of the word on the Lord's day and at other times. Now what Paul wrote to Timothy, it all applies to us. Hold fast to the truth that you have learned from the Holy Scriptures from wherever you have learned them. Grow, understand more, discard things that perhaps were not so as you mature, but let nothing lure you from the sacred Scriptures. Something is very wrong in churches and homes when the fundamentals are not understood by professing Christians and especially the young people in the home. And when the scriptures are not open by father and mother, if you hear that and you're not doing that, then believe and repent and start doing it. If we are to be prepared to face the battle, we need a reformed consciousness and therefore we need that faith that forms our thoughts, our worship, our work, our approach to the world, our approach to suffering, to marriage, to family, to the home. 
the faith that enables us to stand firm, that only the Holy Spirit can impart, but that you can teach and you can live out before your children and grandchildren. Lois and Eunice catechized Timothy. Paul taught him, God is the one who gave the increase. But now there's a third thing, a third element of Paul's challenge to Timothy to stand, and that is simply stand on the Bible. Verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Bible is the impregnable rock upon which we stand against apostasy and for the truth. So he underscores here the Bible's inspiration, pasa grate theopneustas, that word theopneustas, correctly translated in your ESV, God breathed. We speak of the inspiration of the Bible, we use the, the Latin, but it's not taking in breath, it's God breathing out. It comes from God. This word comes from God. The Old and the New Testament, as it was developing until the close of the canon, this is God breathed. Second Peter 1.21, for prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you and I must be prepared We must know our position. We must take our stand with love and grace, but firmness by living out of the sacred scriptures that are given by the inspiration of God. Because life without the Bible, let me repeat myself for the umpteenth time, life without the Bible is absurd. Notice the Bible's profitability here. Teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Teaching, we all need teaching. All need the teaching of salvation. And as saved believers, we need to be taught Christian living. Reproof, reproof of false teaching and of false living. Warning against error that shows us our danger. Correction, setting straight. It's like the setting of a bone because the fall has broken us, and now the Lord is restoring us through His precious Word. Instruction in righteousness. The Bible is filled with instruction in righteousness. One great example of this is in Titus chapter 2, where he says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." The Bible's equipping power is found in verse 17. He speaks to Timothy, and he uses the technical term for prophet, man of God. He says that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Well, of course, there are no prophets today that foretell, but the minister of the gospel is in the train of the prophets when he foretells the word that is given by divine inspiration, the Holy Scriptures. 
It's applicable, of course, to every believer in Jesus Christ, every one of us, the equipping of every believer. How can you be prepared to live in this present age if you are not equipping yourself by spending much time in the sacred scriptures? How? How can we prepare to live the Word known and loved by every born-again heart should rejoice to spend time with God Himself in the sacred scriptures? Young people, the world has every reason to believe the Bible, but it will not. It suppresses what it knows to be true. A regenerated heart believes the Bible even if we believe it alone. William Tyndall, that great Bible translator, you really need to know something about Tyndall. And it's pronounced Tyndall, not Tyndale. William Tyndall. When, when he wrote about the sacred scriptures, he always wrote with such reverence. And he said, As thou readest, therefore, think that every syllable pertaineth to thine own self, and suck out the pith of the scripture, and arm thyself against all assaults. And that's why Tyndall was able to give his life for Jesus Christ in prayer that the Lord would open the King of England's eyes, that he would permit the Bible to spread throughout the kingdom. Well, those are the three ways. I think it's very straightforward. I don't think there's anything esoteric. There's nothing difficult to understand. But are we following the Lord in these things? Are we doing these things? Is there room for faith and repentance as we hear this call? So I want to bring some pastoral concerns and directions as we conclude our look at this text. We see clearly, do we not, how the world goes without a concern for God's word. We see how things are going in the church when the Word of God is disregarded. We see how persecution has increased against the faith. It has increased exponentially, for example, in India over the past couple of years. Did you know that? In China, I'm sure everyone here knows, but we also see it in the Western world, how Christians can lose their jobs and positions by taking biblical, ethical stands because they love the Lord. So what we have in this text is a call to antithetical thinking. Now, young people, I've told you what that means. The antithesis means the opposite. So there is the kingdom of God, there is the kingdom of the devil, there is the kingdom of light, there is the kingdom of darkness, there is the kingdom of truth, there is the kingdom of falsehood. There's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the kingdom of the evil one. And they are opposites. They are antithetical one to another. And it influences everything, not some narrow compartment that you might call religious. It affects everything in life, everything without exception. We are to think rightly, biblically, in a Christ-centered way about everything, nothing accepted. And when you do that, it's going to clash with the world. There will be division. 
the one who said that he came not to bring peace but a sword. So the call here is to come out, spiritually speaking, come out of spiritual Babylon and be not partakers of her sins. And to challenge those around you with the truth of God's word when you have opportunity. And for others, taking opportunity as ministers of the word, missionaries, and others of us who have those opportunities. So when we come to the end of our service and we cry out from the heart, and I think we really mean it, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we should because we are to be the ones who love his appearing. But are we prepared for, for what comes with that prayer? And I don't want to discourage you from praying the prayer. We need to pray it all the more. And I don't want to fill you with fear. I want to say we need the scriptures to help us be prepared for what is going to come. There are precursors to the coming of Christ. There's apostasy in the church. There's tribulation. There's the rise of the Antichrist. The really serious persecution to come when a one world government will close churches. And churches, I mean real churches of Jesus Christ, will become very small and seem to hang on by a thread. And I have in mind here Revelation 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and other like passages in which we understand that sin grows and progresses organically in this world and every generation of Christians must be prepared and pass on the commitment to Scripture and confession to the generation that is behind it. Because every generation should live as if we may be that generation when Jesus Christ will come again. And you can say, yes, I see things shaping up, because they are. That's the organic development of sin we've been talking about. Will there be blessing? Well, the Protestant Reformation happened in the latter days. Of course, this is also the age of Pentecost. But nonetheless, that Holy Spirit who has given us Holy Scripture has also taught us that there will be this growth of sin in the world. Gesink, the Dutch theologian, says experience teaches that when one generation departs from the confession and is indifferent to orthodoxy, the sons break with Scripture and the grandsons with Christ. Also in this is displayed the visiting of the sins of the fathers upon the children. So are we hearing Holy Scripture? We read in 1 John 4, 6, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The antithesis, the spirit of truth, the spirit of error. Those who hear the word, those who do not hear the word. I read recently a wonderful biography of a Dutch theologian whose name is Van, Van Velzen. I'd love to tell you about him, but I'm simply going to say that he and others in about the 1840s, 1830s, 40s, left the liberal state church in the Netherlands, and they were persecuted for it. They had to pay heavy fines for going to worship services. Their ministers were jailed and imprisoned. 
Um, they had uh, army officers billeted in their homes, bringing all their ungodly living around their, their daughters in their homes. Uh, Van Velzen speaks of how his own family, uh, neighbors, threw rocks through their windows and threw mire upon his wife and upon his little boy. You know, when I read this, this is modern history, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't have time to trifle in this world. I don't have time to think, well, maybe one day I'll, I'll start taking things seriously. No, no, you must now, this is urgent, take these things seriously. Live for Christ now. Not toy around with it, not play games Just let us speak out against the pet philosophies of our day or the sins of our generation and see what it brings. Do you think if ministers were preaching straight and Christians living the gospel out of the gospel as we should, and that it were pervasive in this country of all of those who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think we would be, that that we wouldn't be tampered with, that we wouldn't be persecuted? Sure we would. Never compromise. Learn now to take your stand on Scripture and confession. Don't compromise Scripture and confession. Do not compromise principle. Do not compromise striving with all of your might to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, which you can only do through the Holy Spirit. Now here are a couple of right-between-the-eyes comments from a Dutch theologian named Danhoff that you may not have heard of. But He has this to say. These are just selections from a work on the covenant that he wrote. He says, Our entire life, inclination, imagination, desire, thought, word, and deed must arise from the root of regeneration, the principle of true love. One who wills to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. The believer is a friend of God, and by virtue of this, an enemy of the whole kingdom of darkness. As such, he must take his place in this present world with heartfelt trust in God and look to his word alone. The promotion of the cause of the Son of God is his life's task. He is of the party of the living God. God's child is God's friend. He goes on to say, the enemy will know how to turn the temporal might of the emperor over the bodies and possessions of men against the friends of Christ. For this we must prepare ourselves beforehand. Also, the faint-hearted among us have to get ready. The issue will be the covenant of our God. There is no escape from the steel sword of our enemies. But he is not telling the Christian to be hopeless. He goes on, However, because we fight on behalf of the cause of God, we are able to trust in the Lord who is truly Lord. He will accomplish it. His cause will triumph. Strengthened by His grace, we will not lose the crown. Redeemed from all the might of the enemy and more than conquerors, we enter into the joy of our Lord and into the everlasting covenant of the friendship of our God. So, what means more to you? The friendship of the world or the friendship of God? If we are the friends of this world, we are not the friends of God. 
So that's biblical realism that we're talking about this morning, this call to antithesis. And it calls us not to fear. It calls us to be prepared. And that's the point. Because suffering with Christ is a gift of His grace. And if we suffer with Christ, we have the promise that we also will reign with Him. When I was a boy, growing up in a church, we used to sing this hymn. Kay will know it. Some others will know it. The words go like this. The cross, it standeth fast. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Defying every blast. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The winds of hell have blown. The world, its hate hath shown. Yet it is not o'erthrown. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It shall never suffer loss. That cross of Jesus Christ purchased his people with his own shed blood. It will never suffer loss. The cause of God and truth will triumph. It will necessitate the return of Jesus Christ to bring it to consummation, but it will triumph. And every Christian will triumph in it and with him in his triumph. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who does not know, you will suffer loss. You will suffer eternal loss if you do not know Christ. And we call you to Christ. You can only know him through faith, no work of your own. But I want to be on the side of that cross that will never suffer loss. Don't you? Or the words of Toplady, safe in the arms of sovereign love, we ever shall remain, nor shall the rage of earth or hell make thy sure counsel vain. Not one of all the chosen race, but shall to heaven attain. Here they will share abounding grace, and there with Jesus reign. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, and we are called to live for eternity. So the call of this text, people of God, older people, those in the middle, young people, children, the call of the text to us all as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is be prepared. But fear not, little flock, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Amen.